So turn with me this morning to the book of First Thessalonians. We'll be in First Thessalonians chapter three. First Thessalonians chapter three and looking at verses six through ten. First Thessalonians three, six through ten. And we're going to be looking at today in part this issue of steadfastness, what it means to be steadfast. And that's kind of a, a stickedness. It's a stickedness, uh, which I'm pretty sure is not a word, at least certainly when I wrote it, there was the wed, red wavy underline underneath it. But a stickedness, it's, it's an unwavering and it's a firmness to, to who you are. Uh, we want, for instance, a steadfast house. We don't want it to be wavering uh, because that means that we should probably get out of it, right? Uh, that, that, that it would be a problem if the house was not steadfast. Uh, although that's perhaps a strange way to describe a house. You wouldn't typically use that kind of a uh, term for a house. But you don't want it to be blown over at the first gust of wind. And here there's lots of gusts of wind on many different times. So you really want to be sure that it's secure against that. And as we look to the scripture this morning, I really want us to to examine ourselves and to ask the question, are you steadfast in your faith? Are you steadfast in your faith? And in some ways, that's a hard question to answer, I know, because we really don't know the truth of that unless we are going through trial and tribulation. Unless we're in the midst of difficulty, we won't really know how steadfast our faith is Because it's easy to say, yes, everything's grand when everything is grand. But it's much more difficult to say, despite what I'm going through, despite the circumstance I'm in, despite the the, that which is pressing upon me, I still am hoping in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is in the trials of life where we find out whether our belief in Christ will survive. And so let us come to our passage today and consider that a steadfast faith perseveres through affliction. So turn. let's turn to our passage and let's look at this, our scripture, uh, starting in verse 6 of chapter 3, and this is the word of the Lord. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And this is the word of the Lord. And so remember, what, what is going on here in the, in the church? And we could look to, for instance, right before our passage in uh, verses 1 to 3 of this chapter, uh, Paul says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one may be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. So this is the background of what Paul is saying now. He said, we were be, we were willing to be left without our valuable coworker Timothy to make sure that the afflictions that you are undergoing doesn't 
undermine the foundation of your faith that is Christ. Because persecution against the Thessalonians could spell the end of their faith. Paul's pastoral concern was that the hardships that they were experiencing might make them, right? His concern was that the hardships might make them reconsider whether or not Christ was someone worth pursuing. And so he sent Timothy to them to encourage and to exhort them to remain. And so let's see first in our passage in verses 6 to 7, faith, faith. All right, he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, verse 6 there, right? This is part of the context of what Paul is writing is as a result, as a response to Timothy coming back to them and reporting back to them, back to Paul and Silas, these missionaries, about the church and about the work of the church. And so Paul's writing a response here. And the report that Timothy brought back was good news. And interestingly there, that in the Greek, that is the same word that we use when we talk about the gospel, the good news. It's, it's, it is this good news that Timothy has brought back. And what has he brought back? What is that good news? Well, we see it's of your faith and love. Your faith and love. So let's look at that. The Thessalonians had a faith and a love worthy of a good report. We could go back to chapter 1 and look at verses 8 to 10. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Right? Paul has thanked them and said, it is evident that your faith is real because your faith has changed how you act. Right? You used to serve idols, false gods, dead things, things that don't speak or hear or listen, any of those things. That have no senses. And so it's senseless to worship those without sense. And he says, you turn from these false idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, right? That, that you have changed your life. You've changed your hope. What you, what you look to, what they believe mattered. And it was evident in how they responded to the message of the gospel. They also had love. And we'll see in a little bit uh, here what that content of love looked like, especially towards the missionaries. But they had a real self-sacrificial love for their fellow believers, for their fellow church members. Paul will say in uh, chapter 4, verses 9 to 10, listen to this. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So what Paul says there is they have such a love amongst themselves that he doesn't need to write to instruct them on what that love looks like. We see that in other uh, letters of the to the churches where Paul says, here's what love is. Or we see that in 1 John, here's what love is. 
There are times when we need instruction, right? You have to teach a child how to love. And what you have to teach them is what love is and what love is not. And if you look to our culture, right, what it is outside of the church, it is evident that we need in our culture instruction on what love is. Because the instruction that we receive, well, love is just this goopy feeling you feel in your stomach uh, for someone else. And if you don't feel it, well, then you just move on, right? That's what love is in our culture. Uh, when we say our marital vows, right, it's just no big deal. Uh, we say we love, I guess our vows should be rewritten to say something like, I'll love you until I no longer feel like loving you. And then I'm going to drop you at the first sign that I don't love you anymore, right? That's, that's what, that's what love is in our culture. But even within the church, right? Even within the church, we need this instruction on what love is. Because guess what? We are molded sometimes too much by the culture around us. We're molded by romantic comedies about this is what love is. We're, we're molded even as children by Disney movies as this is what love is. And right, what is the end of a Disney movie? And they lived happily ever after. They don't see the moments in the middle of the night when uh, their spouse gets up and irritates them and turns the lights on and right that there's all this trouble and difficulty and and strife and right. But but love is just simply happily ever after. It's that warm feeling we get, which can also be caused by. Too much Taco Bell, right? How, how do we define love? We need to, right? We need instruction on that. First John 4, 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. John says there in First uh, John 4 that God is love. And so if we want to know what love is, if we want to be instructed in what love is, Guess who we need to look to? Not our culture, not the latest movie, not books, but God. We need to look to see what is love is who God is. So we need to understand who God is, and then uh, we will understand what love is. And, And that's what really Paul says there in chapter four about concerning brotherly love. You have no need to to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. If we pay attention to the scripture, we too will be taught by God on how to love one another. So Paul's here encouraged though, right? In in our passage, he is encouraged. He says, now that Timothy has brought us the good news of your faith and of your love, And we see a particular application of that love secondly in verse 6. And he says, And reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. The further aspect of the love which Paul is commending is even reflected in the Thessalonians' desire for the missionaries and their memory of the missionaries. They don't look back at Paul's time among them as something regrettable. And, and again, we may say, well, well, of course not. Like, he's the Apostle Paul. Wouldn't we want the Apostle Paul among us? Wouldn't we want that? Wouldn't that be great? And the issue, we could think, yeah, yeah, it would be great. Wouldn't it be great if the Apostle Paul could, could come and teach us and, you know, 
Uh, maybe Micah could sit up in the balcony and listen to uh, the Apostle Paul teaching, and then he gets tired, he falls down dead, and then right, uh, Paul raises him from the dead, and then he goes on teaching all night. That actually does happen in the book of Acts, not with Micah, though. Sorry, you weren't there, uh, although you have been around for years. Uh, right, so, so they remember Paul fondly, and there is a there is a possibility that they wouldn't because their reception of the message of the gospel of the good news of Christ Jesus resulted in their persecution. They could have looked at Paul and the missionaries as something of a regret Boy, I wish Paul never would have come here because I never would have entered into this difficult time if he had never been here. Right? If you were persecuted for believing in someone's message that they brought to you, would you remember them fondly? Or would you rather forget them? Right? The Thessalonians could have interpreted the good news of Christ Jesus as bad news because of the trouble it brought to them. But no, they understood the good news. They understood that even in the trial and tribulations that they were undergoing, that it was really for their good. That it was better for them as it is now, as they believe and are persecuted, than it was before they believed and were without persecution. They didn't reject Timothy as a messenger. They didn't reject Paul and Silas as trusted teachers and preachers of the message. Instead, they longed to see them. Notice that, right? How you always remember us kindly. And isn't that something that we want of other people, right? We, we want people to remember us kindly. Um, unless you're the sort of person that doesn't, when you want people to remember you angrily or spitefully, which there's bigger problems there maybe at work. But, they wanted to remember us kindly, and they longed to see the missionaries. They longed to see him, even as the missionaries longed to see the church again. Paul has already declared that again, right? Uh, chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, But since we are torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Right? Paul wants to be among them. And it seems that they want Paul to be among them. Right? There's an aspect of their love for the missionaries. And in verse 7, for this reason, brothers, in, in, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. Right? So Paul says that, in all that the missionaries have been going under. And remember that Paul and Silas and Timothy, they themselves are under persecution again and again and again. Read through the book of Acts. Uh, we see their time in Thessalonica in chapter 17, but keep reading. Uh, eventually, the book of Acts ends, right, with Paul in custody in Rome, awaiting a hearing before the Roman emperor by which he will be put to death because he believes in Christ Jesus. Right, so, so he is in distress and affliction again and again, but he says, we've been comforted because of your faith. We have been comforted because you, because even though you are under persecution and you could be faltering, instead I hear about your faith and your love and how you long 
to see us as we long to see you. Right? Paul and the other missionaries, they could feel at ease with the trials and tribulations that they themselves were undergoing because their faith of the church was not overwhelmed. The situation could have rather proved added affliction and distress if Timothy's report was that the faith of the church was faltering. But instead, it was a firm faith. It was a steadfast faith. And we see that in verse 8. So secondly, today, firm in verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And this kind of seems to be in a bit of an extreme statement, doesn't it? Now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. So if they heard that they weren't standing fast, they would be dead. And it could be that this is a statement of hyperbole, of exaggeration, uh, kind of like a, uh, a lover may say to their beloved, uh, I would die without you. Right? We understand that that's not literally true. Uh, but it could be exaggeration, could be hyperbole. Um, but it also could be here that this is a, a declaration of love, right? That this is really a declaration of Paul's love for this church. Something of their joy and the quality of their life is bound up in the faith and the faithfulness of the church. And indeed, there is something here for all ministers, all pastors of the church to pay attention to. There is a sense in which the happiness of the pastor is in some ways tied to the spiritual health of the church he serves. And so when the church is filled with faith and love, when the people of God are being the people of God, then there is life, there is vitality, there is joy. And when the church is in a spiritually unhealthy state, there should be a sense of sorrow in the pastor. Lamentations 3, 49 to 51, we go to the book of Lamentations, which was likely written by the prophet Jeremiah. And if you know anything about the prophet Jeremiah, you might know his uh, kind of his epithet, what people call him. He's the weeping prophet. And Jeremiah witnesses the destruction of Jerusalem. He witnesses the, the judgment of God upon the people of God there in Jerusalem, in Judah. And listen to this as he says out of Lamentations 3, 49 to 51. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me to grief. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. Jeremiah weeps, and he has no other recourse but to continue to weep because of God's wrath on an unfaithful people. And yet even in this, right, it says in verse 50, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees, right, he's hoping in the Lord to see and to relent, as we see God often do in the scripture. Or we could think of another who weeps over the people of Israel in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. And when he, that is Jesus, drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. 
And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus weeps over his people, those who are supposed to be called by God's name because they don't understand, they don't see, they don't believe. There's no faith, there's no love. Instead, there is unfaithfulness and hypocrisy. Elsewhere in the Gospels, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would gather you as a hen gathers in her chicks. But you are not willing. Jesus weeps over him. And so it is with the pastor. When the church is unhealthy, the pastor weeps. And I say this to you both as an encouragement and an admonishment. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Don't be a source of groaning for your pastor, but be a source of joy. And what brings the godly pastor joy? You standing fast in the Lord. Right? What Paul is saying here, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Your firmness in the faith, your steadfastness in your salvation. Because it's not a matter of how many follow. It's not a matter of how big a budget is or how big a building is. It's not a matter of whether there are noteworthy people in our midst or not. It's a matter of faithfulness. Are you faithful to the Lord? Standing fast means that you believe in Christ Jesus and that your life proves your belief as it did among the Thessalonians. right? That's why Paul is encouraged here. That's why Paul says, I, I live because you're standing fast in the Lord. It's not just that they have a verbal assent to Jesus, but it's proved in how they live out their life. Because the reality is, there are many within the American church today that say that they are Christian. The reality is that there are many in our own community who would say as a matter of a demographic statement, right? So what I mean by that is someone says, what religion are you? They would say, boop, Christian. But the proof of your Christianity is not a matter of whether or not your parents or grandparents were. It's not a matter of whether you were born into it. It's not a matter if you were baptized or not. Understand that baptism doesn't make a Christian. It's not a matter if you have been to the church or been to a church in the past so many number of weeks. The proof of your Christianity is, are you standing fast in the Lord? Does your faith change anything in your life? Does it change the music that you listen to? Does it change the movies and the TV shows that you watch? Does it change the way that you talk? Does it change the things that you engage in? Because contrary to what our culture says, to truly believe something is to let that belief affect you. Change what you think and say and do. And Paul says here of the Thessalonians that their belief, their steadfastness in their belief in the Lord has brought to him and the other missionaries life because they see the faith and love of these these believers in Thessalonica. And so what do they feel and desire further for them but to see them face to face? And so let's look at that in verses 9 to 10. Face, 9 to 10. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? 
And here what we have is Paul's third and final Thanksgiving in the book of Thessalonians, right? This is a letter of love, and it's proved in what he what he says about them, right? He, he is so thankful to God for them. By God's grace, next week, we're actually going to see the content of his prayer of thanksgiving that he offers to God. But the missionaries here, right, they say, we are thankful. They rejoice, right, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. And note that this thanksgiving is located in God and before God, and that's important for us to see. So let's look at firstly, in God. This is a thanksgiving in God. The thanksgiving is to be returned to God because it flows from the work of God. Why is it that faith has been born in these Thessalonians? Is it because they were really awesome people and they just got it? Now, Paul already said, verses 4 to 5 of chapter 1, For we know, brothers, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So, Paul says there in verse 4, in the first part of verse 5 of chapter 1, we know that you are loved by God because he has chosen you. Our gospel came to you. And you... He would say later on, you receive the word not as our word, not the, not as the word of men, but as the word of God, as what it really is. And so what thanksgiving can they return to God for you? Right? How much could they thank God for them? What can the missionaries offer to God for his work in the church? What can they offer to God for the joy of the steadfast faith they see in the Thessalonians? Uh, one hymn expresses this problem this way. And it's the love of God is far greater. That's the name of the hymn. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made where every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the skull contain the whole though stretch from sky to sky. Or maybe we could express it similar to the way the apostle John does at the end of his gospel in John twenty one twenty five. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Or maybe we could express it as the Apostle Paul does elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 9.15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Right. So there's an element here of what Paul is saying. What could, how could we offer enough thanksgiving to God? The work of God is a cause for rejoicing, and so it is true for the work of God in others. And I would just briefly ask you to consider here of your own thankfulness to God. Are you thankful to God for your fellow faithful brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you thankful for God for those faithful brothers and sisters in Christ that you see? And as we see here, the, the earnest prayer that the missionaries make for the church, right? They are earnest in their prayer for the church. And as we see this, it does it, does the content of your own prayers for your brothers and sisters in Christ include that? You know, do you really want the best for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you really want to see them exceed and excel and standing fast for the Lord. And let me tell you this for certain, your prayers, both in your thankfulness 
and in your intercession, so that is in your asking, your prayers for your fellow believers will be to the measure that you love them. So to say that a little more simply, what you pray for in the earnestness of the prayer is measured by your love for your fellow brother or sister in Christ. Little prayers are born of little love. But great love leads to joy and thankfulness and desire for the best of God for our fellows. And when I say that, the best of God, by the way, I don't mean um, what is so often meant in the, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That is not to say, I want BMWs in your driveways. To say that we want the best of God for you is that you want that which will conform you to the image of Christ. That which will be for your benefit. And sometimes what is for our benefit is what we would consider bad. Sometimes it is going through the valley of the shadow of death. As it says in Psalm 23. So the apostle though here, he had great love for this church. And so he says, what, what can we do, right? It, our, our thankfulness and our joy is in God's work in you. And notice too that he says that our prayer, our thankfulness, our joy that we feel for your sake at the end of verse 9, before our God. So before God. That's the second part that we need to see here of this verse. Their joy and their thanksgiving that they offer is before God. And so what Paul means by this is that his prayer, his thankfulness, this isn't just empty words, right? These aren't just empty words that he's saying, but he's saying, I am speaking the truth because I am saying it even before God himself. And as Paul would well know, you cannot lie to God. You could try, but you'd be a fool to. Because God knows all things. God would as soon believe a lie as he would be non-existent. In other words, it's never going to happen. God knows the truth always. So what is being said here by the missionaries is the truth of what they feel and what they act, what they live out. They genuinely feel for this church in Thessalonica. They desire for them. And notice what their desire is right in verse 10. As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. They feel this thankfulness and joy for the firm faith of the church, and they pray earnestly. What does it mean to pray earnestly? As often as they pray, night and day, day and night, they pray. And what do they pray? That we may see you face to face. This is their earnest desire. This is something that they pray for often. And I would just say, uh, what is the perseverance of your prayers like? How often do you really pray for something? And what we pray often for shows what we desire. And so it is here for the, th- the missionaries, right? They say, we pray earnestly, night and day, that we may see you. They want to see their brothers and sisters in Thessalonica because they were torn away, Paul said right earlier in his letter. They were torn away. They were, they were forcibly removed from the city by the persecution of a, of a rabble, of an evil rabble. 
They want to be present and they want to help them, right? They, at the end of verse 10, and supply what is lacking in your faith. They want to supply what is lacking. And this doesn't mean here that it doesn't seem to mean at least that they want to return and fix some great problem that's in their midst. Uh, sometimes Paul writes to the church and he writes to them because they have huge problems and they need to be corrected. We could look, for instance, to the, to the letters to the Corinthian church and we see that. We could look to the Galatian church and see that. We, we right, so we see sometimes Paul's letters are, are to a church that is in dire trouble. But we don't get that sense here in this letter to the Thessalonians. We get the sense, rather, he is writing to encourage them and to encourage them to continue to instruct them further in the faith. The missionaries want to be sure that the faith of the church is rooted and grounded ever deeper in the truth of God. So it's not a dig on the on the church here, but rather it's a reality for all of us in Christ. When there is nothing lacking in us as believers, we will no longer need preacher or teacher or commentary or study Bible. First uh, Corinthians thirteen eight to ten, uh, we might know that as a wedding passage, though it's not a wedding passage. But First uh, Corinthians thirteen eight to ten says, "Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away." As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. We know in part now, but there's coming a day when the partial will pass away. And we're no longer going to need a teacher or the preacher because the law of God will be in our heart and our heart will no longer be subject to the sinfulness of our flesh. Supplying what is lacking is the pastor elder's work. Paul says it this way of his own self in Colossians 1, 28 to 29, for instance. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works in me. You must ensure that the goal of the pastor elder that your pastor elder is that they are working to present you as mature in christ are they teaching sound doctrine and are they able to refute those who contradict it and you could look to titus chapter 1 verse 9 to see that requirement of an elder ultimately paul and the other missionaries want to ensure that this church would continue to give them life will continue to be a source of joy because of their steadfastness. They're standing firm in the Lord. He wanted them to have a steadfast faith that perseveres through affliction so that in their own infliction, they might be comforted by the faith of this church. And so do you have a steadfast faith? Is yours a faith that will stand through trial and tribulation? Does your faith buoy or grieve the minister? An encouraging report we see was brought by Timothy to the uh, to the other missionaries, and the report was a source of joy and thankfulness to God because the worst that the Thessalonians would abandon their faith in light of the persecution they were suffering was found to be untrue. The truth was that God was working in them a steadfast hope in their Lord Jesus Christ, a hope that was firm in the face of trial. This steadfastness is a work of God in His people. Jesus himself says of his own in John 10, 29 to 30. My father who has given them to me is greater than all 
and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And as we look to that famous statement we probably heard before in verse 30, I and the Father are one, we often take that as a sense of uh, that there is a unity there among the the Father and the Son. Um, And that's certainly part of it. And I think part of it also here is that they are singular in their purpose of preserving a people. Singular in their purpose. They are one. What they determine, they will do. And the question for you is, really, are you one of God's people? Because steadfastness is a work of God in you. If you are God's people, you will persevere and you will be steadfast in your faith. There's an element where we have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But God's at work in you. The question is, are you one of God's people? Because it's not just a matter of declaring it and living however you please. If you are in Christ, if you truly believe, you will live differently than the lost world around you. You should. And the difference is this, and it's essential. You will want to live differently than the world around you. Doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. That's not what I'm saying here. It's not as though you will be perfect and you will never sin. But what is the direction of your heart? Is is your heart growing in love for God? Or is it diminishing? Is it waning? Or is it non-existent? For some of you, you are not one of God's people because you don't believe in His Son, Jesus. You don't entrust yourself to God. And when you encounter trouble, what you find is that the first thing your mind goes to is, how can I get myself out of this? How can... What do I need in order to get out of this? What what amount of money can I do? When you encounter trouble, you don't look to God. And that's evidence something of your faith in God that is non-existent. And indeed, it may be the reality that when you suffer under trials and tribulations, you purposefully run away from God. Be assured that if you do not believe in Jesus as the Son of God, you will die in your sins and you will suffer the just judgment of your sin. And sin being all that evil, all that wickedness that you think and say and do. Sin being all the things that are opposed to God and His Word. And be further assured that you being a part of a church won't change that. You having believing parents won't change that. You will die in your sin and you will suffer the second death that is described in the book of Revelation as a lake burning with fire. But there is still time to be saved. You can have the forgiveness of your sin. You can be a joy and a source of thankfulness to God and others. Repent. Turn from your sins. Go to God and confess the truth of your evil ways before Him. Trust that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by His sacrifice on the cross, you can have the forgiveness of your sins. Believe in Christ Jesus and live. And once you are alive in Christ, stand firm in the unchanging omnipotence of our God. Let us pray. O Father in heaven, how we desire 
we whom you have saved by your grace, we whom you have filled with the Holy Spirit, who have regenerated us, who have caused us to be born again to a living hope. Father, we rejoice in your work in us and we pray, dear Father, that we would stand firm, that we would be steadfast in it in all of the ways in which we need to. For Father, there are great evils. There is the evil one who presses against us, who seeks to devour us. There is the natural sinful tendency of our flesh that wants to make void of our faith. And there are always the little pressures of those around us who want us to compromise, who want us to enjoy the darkness of sin and death rather than walk in your marvelous light. And so, Father, help us to stay, stand firm. Help us to be steadfast. Lord, work in us that we may be a joy and a source of thankfulness. Lord God, that others may look to us and say, I thank God for you. Father, not that we may receive honor, but Lord, that we would give you the honor and the glory that you deserve, that we may be as you have created us to be, as you have called us to be in Christ. And Father, for those who are without you, those who do not believe in you, Father, we pray that even now your Holy Spirit may be at work in their hearts to cause them to believe. Father, that they would be born again to a new life, that they would leave the death that is their sinful flesh. They would confess before you their sins, that they would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, that they would have a faith that stands firm for the entirety of their life and that they would live in faith and love, live out that which you have called us to in your word. Father, do this work, not because we are worthy of any of it, not because we have earned or merited it, but by your grace, O God. And it is in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we gather and we pray these things unto you. And in his name we pray. Amen.